Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to another amazing episode of Outside the Studio. I am your host. This is Tessa Tovar. I'm really honored and excited for this conversation today with the author of Heart Medicine, How to Stop Painful Patterns and Find Peace and Freedom at Last by Raduli Weininger. So Raduli is an MD, PhD, a clinical psychologist, psychotherapist, and meditation teacher. She leads meditation groups in Santa Barbara and retreats globally at La Casa de Maria Retreat Center, Spirit Rock, Insight, LA, the Esalon Institute, and the Garrison Institute. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're going to dive into this beautiful book. I'm holding a copy here in my hand if you're watching online. Um, and we're going to talk about the work that, that she does and just kind of get into it. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Well, thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Oh, I'm so honored. Um, also welcome your sweet little guest, Lucy. Um, she's, if you're watching online, this precious little, what kind of dog is that? You know, it's her secret. I think there's definitely a bit of Shivaba in there. Yeah. But otherwise I wouldn't know. <laughs> it's her secret. I love that. Ah, <laughs> oh, cool. So let's start off with talking about the book in particular. One of the main and first things that you talk about in this book is the LRPPs, but I think you, you say it's pronounced LERPs, right? Yeah, LERPs. <laughs> so can you explain to me what LERPs are? Right. So that uh, little acronym came about from a conversation with my mentor of 20 years, Jack Cornfield, mm. who's also a psychologist and a meditation teacher. And we talked about uh, complexes, you know, in Jungian psychology you talk, and Freudian, you talk a lot about complexes, you know, these old wounds, these patterns that often repeat themselves. Mm -hmm. yes. And sometimes people feel like sitting ducks, not again, you know, just with a different person. Yeah. And, yeah. <clears throat> and so he said, I talked about complexes, and then he said, Wadley, find a new word. <laughs> and so I played with it, and I think it's maybe a little long, but I came up with long-standing recurrent painful patterns, which then became very quickly LERPs. <laughs> and I noticed that my students and clients actually really liked the LERPs. Mm -hmm. Actually, my Shambhala editor, too. <laughs> and, you know, you kind of feel LERPed, kind of like slimed, and, you know, it's this... Uh, sense, it, what do you call that, an onomatopoeia, where something sounds the way it is? Yes, yeah. Yeah, so LERPS is like that. So that's somehow it got stuck there. <laughs> and, uh, and it just seemed that uh, neither the purely psychological side nor the purely spiritual mindfulness side really alone had amazing answers on how to free oneself from them. Yeah. My yeah. own work, which always had been psychological and spiritual, you know, since 1980, really. 
uh, I felt I needed both. You know, I needed the psychological and the spiritual to free myself at least a little bit. And so that's where the work came from. Hmm. Will you tell me um, what that looks like for you in your practice, in your pathway to healing? What is combining the the psychology or the scientific process of healing with the spiritual process of healing? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think there's one more. I think psychotherapy is a science and it's an art. It's both Mm. of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been trained uh, as a psychodynamic psychotherapist and also gestalt and embodied imagination and Jungian and the whole thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's family systems and this and that, uh, what has come to, to us as psychologists. And I also um, have been a meditator since 1980 when I ended up in a monastery in Sri Lanka. Mm -hmm. So for me, these two paths kind of went parallel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, being trained with boundaries and transference, counter-transference, I never meditated with my clients. You know, that Mm -hmm. was just in the 80s, 90s, not so usual. And then uh, Jack Cornfield asked me, do you meditate with your clients in your office? And I said, oh, no, you know, boundaries, transference, Mm -hmm. counter-transference. And he said, Radley, get over it. (laughs) And it's very interesting, you know, so not that I meditate with everybody, Mm -hmm. but I have now quite a big meditation platform, Mm mindfulheartprograms.org. Where we actually every day, probably twice, have meditations there free and accessible, and mm-hmm. everybody can zoom into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I noticed um, that a lot of my clients are are using those. Mm-hmm. So I think it's an amazing adjunct. And I just notice when people do both, they're in psychotherapy and they also have a spiritual practice that they got better quick, quicker and also more lastingly. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, from that observation, I just think we need both. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it depends really on the person, what I might do if I just refer them to the meditation platform. Like recently I was on a four-week silent retreat Mm. And one of my clients, I was particularly a little worried, you know, a lot was up for her. And I sure had somebody covering for me. But uh, I asked her in the end, so how did you fare? And she said, actually, I was pretty good because I went every morning to meditation. Mm. You know, somebody else was teaching. And uh, so that really helped her. So I thought... That's interesting, you know, that when she really did this, it was okay for me to be gone for Mm. a little while. Mm. And so I think those two paths really complement each other. Mm. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I'm, I'm someone who's been, you know, aware of 
counseling therapy since I was five years old was my first experience in that realm. Um, and also early on with the practice of meditation or the ritual, I guess I would say of, um, in my family home, we had an altar where we would sit together and, um, maybe not so much meditation in the traditional sense of like sitting upright, whether silent or guided, but, um, thinking about the practice of spirituality, um, from a ritual standpoint and being intentional with that. So I agree with you 100%. In fact, we were talking about this a little bit before we started to record about, you know, do we value one more than the other? And I think that we would agree that both of these medicines need to come together um, to heal um, for each of us. And, and one is not better than the other and one is not right or wrong. Um, but they're both tools to have in our tool belt to, to help us heal and move forward. So with that in mind, um, I want to talk in particular about trauma, childhood trauma, trauma in general. Um, I, I want to, I think it can be a nuanced thing. I think we can experience on a spectrum of something that we might consider um, uh, obvious trauma or um, something a little bit less like experiencing neglect in childhood, where we can look back at our childhood and say, well, my parents were, you know, I had an intact family, my parents were there for me, I had a roof over my head, I had food in my belly. So what am I complaining about? And I say that in quotes, because I, I do this myself. You know, I had a relatively um, safe happy upbringing, but I still have all of these, I call them samskaras, habits and behaviors yeah. that I don't think serve me very well in adulthood. And it looks like, it looks like, uh, um, the result of having childhood trauma. Um, so I want to hear about your definition mm -hmm. and that spectrum of childhood trauma that we can experience, whether it's overt or more like internal and a little bit more insidious. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, maybe first I want to say you mentioned the word samskara, mm -hmm. which is really the Sanskrit term yes. for those uh, seeds in our mind stream. And I think I talk about that a little bit in, in heart medicine, mm -hmm. uh, you know, how we can look at this from a Western psychology and from a Buddhist slash Hindu perspective. And uh, the difference is, I think they're both these knots in our psyche. Mm -hmm. But in the East, they believe that they may have gone through lifetimes. Mm -hmm. I was just saying that because you mentioned the word samskara. That's usually part of that uh, understanding. And I'm there fairly agnostic. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know, maybe. Um, so I remember the Dalai Lama was once asked, does he believe in nature or nurture? Mm. And he gave a really interesting answer. I think that was an interview with Howard Cutler, a psychiatrist. And he said, well, if everything was just nature or nurture, it would be like I lost a key and it can be only under the street lamp because that's the only place I can see. So in a way, there may be many more possibilities where the key could be, mm -hmm. you know, so maybe I wanted to say that I, because I thought that was such a good answer. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, yes, I have my ideas about childhood trauma and what the new science says, 
But I think also uh, there's just so much still to learn. Mm -hmm. And so uh, just now back to childhood trauma, you know, I think there are many different kinds of trauma. There are, <clears throat> there's the childhood trauma where, let's say, a parent died or an accident was witnessed or um, one of my client's mom was, was murdered. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that terrible things can happen in childhood. Mm -hmm. And then there's more insidious trauma, as you called it, micro trauma, you know, like a pattern of not being seen or not being understood or maybe being fed and having a roof over their head, but um, being brushed off or being ridiculed or uh, so I think those traumas can be accumulative. Mm -hmm. And I think the jury is really out whether um, one huge trauma or the accumulative, more subtle trauma is worse. Mm -hmm. I remember once working, um, leading an incest survivor group in the late 80s in San Francisco in a big hospital. Mm -hmm. And people were really traumatized there. And uh, one woman came, she was actually the exception in that group, but she had been raped by, a, I don't know, a guy in the forest, you know, like a, mm, like a, a stranger, a stranger, yeah. somebody maybe just, and so, but her parents were completely appropriate. You know, they took her right to the doctor, they believed her. She was two weeks in bed. And I would say she had some harm, you know, but she survived pretty well. Mm -hmm. While others were there, they weren't believed. Uh, their mothers didn't want to hear it. Um, there was an ongoing threat of violence or not believing um, and just a dysfunctional atmosphere in the house, mm -hmm. there was much, much bigger trauma. Mm -hmm. So um, it's, it's quite interesting because I see a lot of uh, college students mm -hmm. and I also see many older people, but I, I live in Santa Barbara, there's UCSB and so I see a lot of young adults, and so they are just away from their families and often reevaluate. Mm -hmm. And so, even the question is it better if my parents stayed together or got divorced? Oof, yeah. <laughs> you know, because quite often there are people whose parents stayed together but very unhappily. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the damage can be huge, even though. They stayed together for the kids, you know, yeah. while other people who may be divorced and were civil to each other <clears throat> maybe managed okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And sure, then there are examples where people got divorced and didn't hold it together and were not appropriate or protective. So it's very hard to know. My, Maybe I didn't answer your question very well. Would you? 
No, I, I agree with you. It is hard to know. And I actually have done a lot of reading on this um, particular question of what is, you know, if we were try, if we were going to try to answer the question, what is worse to experience the overt, obvious, violent, traumatic abuse, or the insidious, where you're not believed, where you're neglected, where you don't have the resources to um, you know, like learn how to parent yourself basically, or you don't have the role models that, um, are emotionally mature enough to give you the tools to figure out how to go and then be an adult in the world, because we're all going to experience adversity at some point in time. It's just a matter of when, and how do we, how do we, um, react to it, I guess is kind of the way that I think about it. So I don't, I don't think I have the answer either. Right. But, um, I but think that's something important. You know, you said the way we react to it. So right. I think one thing is if we have seen our parents react in healthy ways, yeah. no matter what the adversity was, mm -hmm. that is probably really important. Actually, I might have thought of that, but I don't think it's quite off. That would be an amazing research topic. Yeah, so it's like seeing your parents react to adversity in appropriate and kind and sensitive ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that at least in my experience, um, you know, it may be true for most listeners, um, maybe not, I'd be curious to hear what everyone's experience is actually, but I didn't have role models, parental figures in my life who, who dealt with, um, high stakes emotions. And I felt what I felt was a healthy way. There was a lot of passive aggressive energy. There was a lot of, um, emotional angry outburst that wasn't managed and anger became this thing that was really scary. Mm. Um, and anger, I believe is one of those, those main emotions that we do need. It serves a purpose. It keeps us safe. It tells us when there is, um, danger, but we need to know how to use it just like we need to know how to use a sharp knife. Um, appropriately and we need to know when to put it away and when to turn it off. Um, so yeah, I don't see a lot of healthy modeling in adults and certainly in adulthood myself, I don't feel like I have fully come into my powers of using my anger as a tool. <laughs> um, personally, I feel like I'm still dealing with all of my childhood, um, trauma. And so I, th I think what I want to ask you, uh, Roduli is, so I've heard this before from another uh, psychologist that I work with. I actually came to him and I was, he was aware of my background and my parents. And I was, I had all these questions for him about my childhood and my parents. And I was about in my thirties when I started to ask this question and he's like, Oh, it makes so much sense to me that you're doing this work now in your thirties. This is the time psychologically when we develop and we start to turn our attention inward and really start to heal all of those old uh, er, childhood traumas. Mm. Is that, what is your experience with that? Well, you know, that's interesting. That's almost Jungian mm. because uh, Jung said, well, people shouldn't really come to therapy before um, age 22. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, not 22, 42. 
uh, kind of the midlife crisis, you know, because that's when we start to look inward. I just think um, there's much more variety. Like I, I had to start therapy when I was 22. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had a, maybe a little bit more drastic background. My mom, you know, survived the Second World War and was quite traumatized there, had me out of wedlock and hid me in an orphanage mm-hmm. for two years and then pretended to her family, she was a doctor, that uh, I was adopted. And mm-hmm. so there was this big mystery in this family where I came from. They're very Catholic, very repressed. So, you know, that was definitely, it's quite a story. And I definitely had to go to 25 or 30 years of therapy, you know, this and that to work through that. And in the end, I ended up very well with my mom. You know, she lived here the last years of her life and she died in my arms. And I'm actually very grateful for that. Mm-hmm. But it took a long time and I don't know, I'm now meditating 42 years and, you know, she died 13 years ago. So that would have been maybe around 30 years of meditation. But uh, so, uh, and, you know, definitely had to work with these hurts of abandonment and rejection and shame, you know, a lot of shame. Where does she come from? You know, something is wrong with her, you know, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's probably why I wrote the book, because Mm -hmm. I felt like a sitting duck to my lerps. Mm -hmm. But you know, you're right, there are more blatant traumas. And you know, I had then two big car accidents in my early 20s. The second one left me six weeks in the hospital on a brain injury unit. And so uh, I took then, I was in medical school then in Germany, and I took some time out and went with my boyfriend to Sri Lanka, whom then I dragged into the monastery. <laughs> I wanted to go to the beach, but I wanted to go to the monastery. <laughs> and you won. <laughs> well, then I went with him to a Hindu monastery in, in India afterwards, and then we went both back and finished our medical stuff. But um, mm. it was it, it was great, you know, in a way I had to, and I had started therapy just a little bit before then because I couldn't drive the car. Every time I tried to drive the car, my foot would shake. Mm. And my mother, who was not into therapy, said, a doctor has to drive a car. <laughs> she wanted me to do some cognitive behavioral thing to Mm -hmm. drive again. Mm -hmm. And I remember my first therapist said, well, you know, the driving will come back by itself, but there are a lot of other things wrong. Mm -hmm. I remember crying and, and I was so glad to be there. Mm -hmm. You know, like therapy wasn't the thing to do then in Germany. So I, uh, so I had to start early, you know, I, I didn't have the luxury to wait to midlife. And so I would say I might disagree there with Jung, you know, that people start looking inward at all different times, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, some sooner and some later, depending 
And then, you know, I think people have also internally different ages. Mm, but yeah. I kind of don't quite like the old soul. Well, you know, it sounds a bit new agey, you know, but there is something about it. You know, I have yeah. one son, I have three children and one of my sons, he is definitely, you know, wow. He was little and he asked me, mom, what's behind the nothing and the nothing and the nothing? <laughs> Uh, the other ones were just normal and wanted to party, but uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So you know, so there are individual differences. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, absolutely. I wanted to go back to something that you mentioned more towards the beginning of our conversation. Um, we were you were starting to talk about lerps and defining them and. Mm-hmm. Um, you said something along the lines of these seeds or these habits and behaviors um, can be, well, I think this was in response to my use of samskara. They can be um, from this life. Sometimes they can be from past lives, maybe. Um, and I'm curious to, to, to know, like in your study and your research and your experience and your thought um, and your beliefs, what I think the question is like, because I kind of go back and forth with thinking about karma in this way as yeah. it relates to samskara. Um, and I, I don't think of karma in that blatant way of like, you're a bad person, so you're going to get a bad outcome, but more of like um, thought um, creates action, creates outcome. Right. And how awesome. does that... Yeah. Yes. And how does that thread through life cycles Mm -hmm. and generations and souls to create this kind of karmatic um, soul or exchange? It's a really weird question. I don't even know if I asked a question, but I'm curious if you could speak to that topic a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Well, um, you know, this is such an interesting question you are asking. I'm fascinated by it and again you know again I have to say that lots of it is for me in the realm of the agnostic you know I I don't know I can only guess what makes a human person you know I actually asked myself sometimes not so much why well you could ask different questions with, with my little story I ask myself sometimes, why was I so lucky and pull through? Mm-hmm. You know, like um, this could have ended a lot worse. Mm-hmm. Here I'm quite happily married and have three adult children and a dog and a cat. And I'm quite, you know, fulfilled in my life. Mm-hmm. So you wouldn't really expect that. And uh, it seems you're okay if I'm weird, right? (laughs) Well, it it makes me think about the question of nature versus nurture. And then the Dalai Lama's response, or was it Howard Cutler's response? No, it was the Dalai Lama's response. To Howard's question. Yes. I I had this weird experience, but you asked a weird question, so you get a weird answer. (laughs) But um, it is... um, I just came from this four-week silent retreat, you uh-huh. know, just uh, uh, a week ago. 
and uh, just really meditating very, very, very deeply. And, um, and I got the sense, you know, when I was in that orphanage children's home place, that uh, for some reason I was back there, and then there was this little voice, I was always with you. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I always had a connection to what the Tibetans call the field of awareness, mm-hmm. you know, or awareness as a, as a presence, mm-hmm. not as a person, not as a thing, but as something that is both personal and impersonal, that's mm-hmm. complete paradox and mystery. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and I just had the sense, it was a weird experience, but mm-hmm. as you asked, it was there. And so when I met this old monk at age 22 in Sri Lanka, just purely, you know, happenstance, mm-hmm. I went, went down this road, which was called International Buddhist Center. And I was curious, something mm-hmm. pulled me there and I rang the bell and this young monk opened and said, what do you want? And I said, I don't know. And he said, follow me. Ooh. And then he went and set me in front of this incredibly old little monk, like a mummy. And he first, I thought, wow. And so then he looked at me and he kind of looked straight through. And so it was just this amazing energy. And he said, what do you want? And I said, I don't know. I want to learn. Mm. And he said, very good. Come every morning at 9.15. <laughs> and so I did. And then that ended up getting me into the monastery. But I just remember the energy there. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even what he said or he didn't say, say, sit straight and do this and do that. It was just, I thought, wow, whatever's going on here, I want Mm-hmm. You know, that sense of maybe peace mm-hmm. or I can't quite describe it, you know. So it wasn't really a smart book or even a technique that got me there, even though mine, I did lots of Vipassana, inside mindfulness, Tibetan meditation. But uh, it was really sitting there and sensing there was something really amazing going on here. Mm. He died a few weeks later, um, and I found out he was the head monk of Sri Lanka there. He was a famous guy. Jack Cornfield actually knew him years earlier. But it was just happenstance that I went down that road, that the door opened, that the young monk brought me to him. I was nobody, you know, a young student. Mm -hmm. I think even in tank top, which are not supposed to wear in front of a monk, but I didn't know. I had no plan, mm-hmm. and uh, so it's it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so too. And I like weird. I, I ask weird questions because I like weird responses. <laughs> um, <laughs> right? I have. Uh, there's a couple of threads on that I want to follow, and they're they're pretty closely related. I think one has to do with the practice of Vipassana and going to a silent retreat. And um, I think about 
you know, preparing for something like that, because they think there are varying lengths that you can sign up for. I, I don't know what the shortest length of a Vipassana would be, but um, I've seen like 10 days. And then you mentioned four weeks, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you prepare for some, because the, here's my understanding of what Vipassana includes. It's you're not just going and being silent, but you're also disengaging from sensory activities such as reading a book or listening to, um, music. Um, and so it is very much a practice of being silent and, and, um, drawing the awareness inward. And I think, and tell me, um, what your experience is that some Vipassana, maybe not all include, um, things like disengaging from eye contact with other people and even like a uh, facial expression, like exchanging smiles and, um, and things of that nature. So how do you prepare for something like that? Do you need to well, practice? Maybe, maybe first I want to say, when I first got there, I was absolutely unprepared. Hmm. I had not read anything. I didn't know anything. I just, um, this monk gave us an address and we wrote and I went there and I think it was perfect not to know anything. Mm-hmm. Really beginner's mind. Yeah. And I just sat and sat and stayed one month, two months, whatever, until our visa went out. <clears throat> and I just really um, loved it. I loved sitting. And so since then, um, I have done, uh, I think, usually a go to spirit walk. I think they call that inside meditation. It's very much like you describe it. Um <clears throat> and I have done, oh God, so many of those. Um, the last maybe five to 10 years, I got interested in uh, some of the Mahamudra Tsogchen teachings. Mm-hmm. They come from the Tibetan tradition and they are a little different in that they are not just, Vipassana gets you to a very deep spiritual state by slowing down or by concentrating. Mm -hmm. So that's why the not looking, not doing everything very slowly, you know, and then at usually you do 10 day retreats, but you can also do longer ones like this four week retreat. Uh, At day seven or so, it's, it's almost like spiritual energy breaks through Mm -hmm. and you get into this subtle mind state. That's how the Tibetans would call it. Mm-hmm. The uh, Theravadan Buddhists often don't, they have this thing of don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, you have this experience, but they don't want to name it. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, and I actually, that's maybe why I got, besides having Jack still as my mentor, uh, I'm, I got really interested in the these Tibetan secret teachings because there is this idea that awareness is not just a moment by moment, a wearing, mm-hmm. a verb. It's also something that's already there. Mm-hmm. And that you can uh, kind of um, touch into and rest into. And actually, you can kind of almost cross over and then be from that perspective. And actually, the Vipassana or inside folks have that too. Uh, I actually had this time long 
talks and um but they keep it very secretive and for i don't know the monks or you know the mm -hmm. teachers <laughs> so uh and i maybe i'm also quite interested in social activism mm -hmm. i'm a friend and student of joanna macy and uh actually a very close friend you know she's coming to my morning 7 30 meditations wow. which is wonderful you know my i love her you know i really love her she's 93 now and um and you know this is our world you know we and it's in trouble and even though there is something beyond this world a wider perspective it's also there it's when there is a personal and there is a ultimate reality and we live both it's a paradox mm -hmm. and so that's why I kind of got interested in these other, they're called pointing out instructions, these practices where you can actually get to the sense of interconnectedness with the more, with the great mystery mm. much faster. Mm -hmm. Because who can go to a 10-day retreat? They're expensive. Yeah. And, uh, you need to use all your vacation and you know so i'm actually uh even though i i'm very grateful to all the 10-day retreats i took i i'm not sure this is the only thing i'm advocating this these days mm -hmm. and uh, and actually i have to say i did doing my four-week retreat with two others one spirit walk teacher and one guy you might know him roger walsh He's a great writer in transpersonal psychology and head of a uh, integrative psychiatry program. So we did our Sokjen practices during these four weeks. Oh. And so we didn't do really, but they let us do it. You know, they yeah. allowed us to do this. And yeah. so it was really wonderful. So I think the field is changing mm -hmm. because we need practices and mindfulness is amazing mm -hmm. and it has great psychological benefits to really be aware of yourself and present with the other and all of that. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to kind of find ways to touch into whatever the this field equality of awareness is. Mm -hmm. um, and bring it back into our world. Yeah, yeah. I agree with you 100%. I think that's, you know, when we, when we recognize that interconnectedness, um, I love that word, you brought it up. It reminds us that, um, you know, I always think back to this, I, I was coming home from a flight somewhere and I remember getting off the airplane and I was headed to the bathroom and I looked up above the entrance of the bathroom. There was this quote on the wall um, and it said, I am you, he is she, and we are all together. Um, I love that. Yeah. I know. I, it just has stuck with me. And I always think about that in terms of the concept of interconnectedness, not really a concept, but the reality that really that is a true statement um, and that we oftentimes forget it because especially in Western society, we are so wrapped up in what do I have 
and what do I not have and how do I get more of what I want? And there's a lot of I statement in that. And I'm not, you know, pointing any fingers because this is something that I work on personally for myself. So this, this work, this practice is really important. And as we think about our world being sick, um, the earth, you know, and the resources that we have, which are finite that we're kind of burning through, it's, it's important work. Um, so I thank you for that. And thank you for bringing it up. Um, and thank you for writing this beautiful book. And I do want to say, um, I want to say the title again, I said it in the beginning, but I want to call out heart medicine, how to stop painful patterns and find peace and freedom at last. Um, I have so many more questions. I feel like I need a whole another hour with you. <laughs> well, maybe yeah. I also want to say that, uh, you know, we have this meditation platform and I teach almost every morning and many. Yes. Evenings. And we'll link to that in the show notes. But will you say that you, you mentioned the URL. Will you say that again for us? Mindfulheartprograms.org mm-hmm. or PhD.com. They okay. both link to each other. Great. I'll make sure that definitely is free. They're completely free and you can come and go as you want. I love that. Thank you so much. So um, in the interest of time, this book, so it has so many great, there's journaling exercises, there's meditation practices in it. There are um, real life examples in your experience. You talk about um, the how to of all of this, right? So I think the question I want to ask, um, to wrap up our conversation is what do you hope that readers will take away from this book? Okay. What I hope readers will take away from this book is, um, first feeling understood and recognized with their lerps, with their old wounds that sometimes recur and also to know that maybe not with a pill or press of a button Mm. but with some work and some um, love towards yourself you can work through this Mm -hmm. and you can you know get that lerp from the front seat into the passenger into the back seat into the trailer you know Mm -hmm. so it doesn't run your life anymore Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and there's hope and i think the uh, the world the universe whatever it is comes towards to help us if we come toward it Mm -hmm. yeah Mm, i love that i love that in in the i the world comes toward it as we come to the world in the way that we were also talking about karmatic exchange and some scara and the seed of thought and the action that follows that. Um, I was just talking with a client before this about the, the practice of manifestation, not necessarily needing to be this magical thing that happens, but a thing that is very practical and requires the conscious mind to say, I have this goal. How do I want to make it happen? I have to actually do something to manifest that reality. So it's not just like this, I want a million dollars, poof, I'm manifesting a million dollars into my bank account. It is, what are the steps to create that particular outcome? Mm -hmm. Um, 
I'm not sure why I just went off on that tangent, but it made me think of that, <laughs> the practice of manifestation. Well, actually, you know, there is um, a beautiful old Chinese proverb that Jack Cornfield often rephrases. Mm -hmm. and he says, intention leads to behavior. Mm -hmm. Behaviors make up habits. Mm -hmm. Habits have something to do with our personality and personality leads in some ways to our destiny. Mm. And I think intention is really important, but I would put one thing in front of intention, mm. which is longing. Mm. I think it was Thomas Merton who said, the path to God is not through steps, but through longings. Mm. You know, if we really long for this, you know, this reconnection, this home, get it, finding our way home to freedom, then it will lead to an intention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm, I love that. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate your time. And I think that what I'm taking away from this is that... Um, Perhaps if you'd welcome a round two of a conversation, I would love Anytime. that. Anytime. <laughs> because I need more time with you. Well, everyone, that concludes another amazing episode of Outside the Studio. I hope you enjoyed yourself. I hope you learned something new, maybe remembered something old, maybe felt inspired to apply something to your life. My, <laughs> you can hear my dog in the background. She's doing a little happy dance. Um, so Daisy enjoyed it. Anyhow, I wanted to just pop in here to wrap us up to say a couple of things. Number one, I have such an amazing team that helps me put these podcasts together. Without them, I wouldn't you know, be able to bring these amazing conversations to you. So thank you to my producer, my director of creative services, my sound editor, my um, engineer, Consistency Media. Don't know what I would do without you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And the amazing creation and artistic, musical, genius, Drew Lovern, thank you so much for putting together this music for specifically for Outside the Studio. So unique to the show, only place you're ever going to hear it is right here. Thanks, you guys. You make my world go round. Stay well, everyone. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Share on the socials, especially if it's a show that you think, hey, this could help somebody else. That's what this is all about right we're sharing information so that we're better um so that we're inspired so that we're lifting each other up and we're learning how to be in this world living on this planet to the best of our ability sharing information and inspiring one another and that's my hope that's my hope for the show take care